0: Um, all right, you guys can open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 5. I got to give some props to Allie back there running the uh, s- slides. Wasn't that impressive how the, the music was on during the prayer video? And and she just, bam, boom, boom, <laughs> knew just what to do. And I actually read a newspaper article this week that uh, a new scientific discovery showed that Everything that goes wrong during a church service is attributed to the sound guy. So, uh, the article concluded that it's science. So, um, that was actually a Christian satire article. It was pretty, we had a joke, we had a laugh among the worship team about that, but, and Dustin's like, it's like his first week ever back there, but sorry, buddy. All right, so um, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. Um, why don't we stand together? all will read it. And, um, you know, this is week 10 in probably a 13-week series of uh, Christ-centered, gospel-centered family. And, you know, here at Calvary Chapel, we put great emphasis on expository preaching. Uh, that is going through the scripture and letting does scripture speak to us uh, within context? That is giving a great uh, place for the, the whole context of God's word. Oftentimes that is just a verse by verse, you know, chapter by chapter uh, series that we go through a book. Um, but at times it can be topical. And even in topical, you can preach expository. You can you use the text as a scaffolding to outline your sermon in your series. So... Uh, this last year we went through the book of Ephesians, and now we're really taking, you know, some 14 weeks to look at, you know, the the family as shown through the gospel. That's in Ephesians chapters 5 and the first part of chapter 6. So, um, just so you know, this series it, it is in the context of Ephesians chapter 5 as we go through it. Uh, Ephesians 5:25. And really, I encourage you on your own time to to maybe just go back even tonight and look at 18 through 33. But it starts out, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Lord, we believe this is your word that that families and marriage and the role of husband and wife can be all the more purposeful and glorious when seen through the lens of the gospel, what God through Christ has done for us to redeem us back to himself from sin, that we would be in relationship once again, worshiping him. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, This week I started a new book, uh, kind of in my leisure time, a leisure book. Uh, not a whole lot spiritual to it. Uh, it's called Alone on the Ice, and it's been called one of the greatest survival stories of all time. Uh, it's the story of, uh, of a group of polar explorers who end up being trapped in glaciers as they uh, traverse through Antarctica to make it to the magnetic South Pole. Incredible book. I didn't even know. You know, it was kind of the last one on my list. I ended up picking it anyways, and I'm just like, oh. Uh, I have to clarify, it's an audio book, uh, just in case some of you thought for a minute I could read. Um, that's not true. But uh, So I'm listening to this book, and uh, Lindsay goes, how do you have time to read all these books? I, I listen to them as I'm trying to go to sleep at night. and uh, So I get about seven minutes in, and then i got to go back and listen to the next seven minutes, and it takes a little while. But uh, it's in the book that I just go crazy. I start researching and looking up these guys. And I find that one of these polar explorers was a man named Lawrence Oates. Lawrence Oates, he was from England. He was a cavalry officer in the uh, Royal Cavalry, and he was a hero in the Boer War. Uh, And he ended up being shot in the leg and just having like his, his leg just explode. And he went through time of being healed up. And over time, he ended up being drafted onto this polar exploration as like the horsemen of the group. And they would use horses to get them a certain place to drop a big load of of food so they could continue on. Most of the horses ended up dying, which was a total bummer. But uh, this guy, it has nothing to do with it, but in case you were like, oh, horses, no. Um, (laughs) but, But all these men were very fascinating. But this guy, as I was studying the marriage and family series, and I just took a little break and I was folding laundry folding laundry, listening to my audiobook. book. Um, Linz, could you bring me my ice water up here? Just in case you were forgetting. Um... Okay, never mind. <laughs> it, listening about this man in particular. Um, as he was on this journey, he was with about 15 men. And uh, as they went, it was like 900 miles that they had to go through just the freezing tundra, you know, and uh, dogs are dying and sleds are falling into crevasses and and they're falling in and being caught by a rope and having to hoist each other up. And uh, and then as, as they would hit checkpoints, men were sent back until finally there were only five guys to make the last like 65 miles and make it to the South Pole. They get there, they find out there's a tent there. In the tent is a note that some Norwegian guy made it there 30 days before him and left a little neener, neener, neener note for him, right? So, they take a picture, uh, they start heading back, and just very sadly, spoiler alert for those of you that were going to go read this book, um, just the guy, the last five guys just start dropping. Uh, One guy dies, and uh, in fact, I think this guy, um, Lawrence Oates, ends up being the first guy uh, to die on the way back, and this is how it Happened. He uh, began to just get severely frostbitten, and they weren't making their nine miles a day to make it back to their food stores. And so he was just becoming emaciated and scrawny, and he began getting scurvy, uh, not getting the right diet. And uh, his leg began, uh, that old wound, that old war wound, began festering and just causing him problems. And he began to beg his fellow guys to just leave him behind, or they won't make those food caches as they go along, and they refuse to let him go. And what makes this story just incredible in light of even the Gospel Family series, it says that um, waking in the morning on the 17th of March, Oates walked out of the tent into a blizzard of negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit to his death. The team leader, Scott wrote in his diary before Oates exited the tent and walked to his death he uttered the words I'm just going outside and maybe some time but Scott went on to write we knew that poor Oates was walking to his death but though we tried to dissuade him we knew it was the act of a brave man and an English gentleman. In other words, Lawrence Oates ended up sacrificing his life for his brothers, for his friends. And the sad thing is is it didn't end up helping much. Everybody ended up dying in a three-person reindeer sleeping bag just a few miles away after that. Uh, So you might remember C.T. Studd's quote from last week as we closed up our service, where he writes in his book, The Chocolate Soldier, that if Christians today had but half the pluck as men like this, the whole entire world would have heard of the Jesus Christ in 10 years' time. Man, these are guys that are just going and dying for what? Like, so that the magnet on their string will be like, beak, Polar! You know, South Pole! You know, and that has some great things, I'm sure. But we have a commission of Jesus to go and to give it all so that the world would know Christ. And in this sacrificial act I'm reminded of John 15:13 Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Or a very similar gospel passage not John 3:16 but 1st John 3:16 kind of helps you memorize it, right? By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It's like Scott wrote of Oates, that we knew his sacrifice was the act of a brave man and an English gentleman. That's kind of a cool manly way of sort of saying, he sure loved us. He sure loved us. And when we think of such sacrificial love, We think of Jesus, that ultimate hero, that ultimate sacrifice of love. And when we think of marriage, we're to think of that Christ sacrifice of love. You know, all of our love for him is but a reciprocation of his love for us. The Bible even says that we love him because he first loved us. It was initiated by him. And it's part of the reason why we try to sing at this church way more about his act of love towards us than anything that we could bring for him. Uh, this sermon, here's a little warning, is going to be quite quoty, right? Quite quoty. The reason is because I don't know anything about being a husband, all right? There's going to be 15 years of marriage this January, and I still got nothing. And Lindsay was asking me, except for four kids. We do have that. And a wife that sits in the front and laughs at all my jokes. That's something. Anyways, last, last night, Lindsay was, you know, saying, so, you know, what are you teaching on? You know, is this week eight of wives submit to your husbands? I'm like, no, no, we finally made it to husbands love your wives. That's what I said. Who are you going to believe? She says, so are you learning anything? And, uh, and I just said, man, I think one thing that I'm learning in probably my third time preaching this series is people can go 50 years and get that golden anniversary or 60 years or 70 years and they can, they can make it. All right, I died one woman, one man for life and yet that marriage can have zero Model of Jesus in the church and can bring zero glory to God except that it was one man, one woman for life. And that's it. And as we are seeing in this series, there is so much more intended in marriage than just making it to the platinum anniversary. Okay, so congratulations if you've made it. 15 years, you know, I think Nate just had 11 years, you know, you guys praise God. But, you know, I have plenty of relatives that made it 50, 60, 70 years. And on rare occasions was it much more than oppressive, depressive, depressing, (laughs) um, harsh, severe, calloused, cold, no intimacy. As a pastor, how often is it months at a time that I hear of of married people having no intimacy? And I was just feeling the Lord saying this morning, don't forget in this series to teach on sexual intimacy in marriage. So boom, it's coming. All right, but you guys, here's the deal. I know what you're thinking. This is like week 10 of this whole family thing. All right. Is he even expository preaching anymore? I know what you're thinking. All right. But here's, here's the thing. I'm just learning that you guys, this is, this is necessary. It says at the end of, of our text that we just read that I'm telling you a mystery, guys. I'm not even talking about marriage anymore. I'm talking about the gospel. And if you get tired of hearing about the gospel, your marriage is going to vacuum process. Can't say it from the pulpit, so you figure it out. (laughs) So the reason this sermon is going to be quite quoty today is because I have had to go to the Word and then go and understand the Word from just a series of incredible gospel-centered preachers and counselors that have literally written the book on marriages and families that glorify God and that model Christ and that are healthy and that follow the biblical principles. So forgive me the quotiness. And starting with the first, Tim Savage. Man, if you're going to write a book on marriage, you got to have a good name. Savage. All right. The enormity of Christ's love. So we think of Lawrence Oates, right? And that sacrifice. What an English gentleman, you know? What a loving guy. We think of Jesus's sacrificial death. And then we think of Christ's enormous love. And so the enormity of Christ's love suggests an important implication for marriage. A husband must come to view his love as much more than a reciprocal duty. Okay. Now, hopefully there will be a reciprocation. The wife will love you back, respect you back, submit back. But here's the thing. Many books on marriage. The motivation is husbands love your wives because that will make her respect you. But what if she doesn't? What if she doesn't? And so there's the gospel suggests an important implication for marriage. A husband must come to view his love as much more than reciprocal duty. His love was never meant to be a mere response to his wife's subordination. Savage goes on to say the radical nature of Christ's love is missed by men who make a habit of pointing out to their wives the importance of submission. Husbands who track closely evidence of their wives' subordination invariably neglect their own responsibility. The call of a husband to love his wife ought to be so all-consuming that a husband has little time to attend to his wife's submission. Does that make sense to you guys? Dudes. You know you sit there festering and you're lazy, boy, because she just ain't submissive enough. I get no respect around here. Little subliminal iTunes on of R-E-S-P-E-C-T and like maybe she'll get the point you see and, and all of that good stuff. You're missing the part of the gospel. You're missing your true intention, the intention that God has for you. And you ought to just be so sacrificially loving to your wife. Nothing else on your mind but to love her that you totally forget whether she's submitting or not. That's the gospel. (laughs) Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And I, you know, it takes one to know one, guys. Because there's been a lot of times where I've just... (laughs) What can I say? She's her mother's daughter. (laughs) Good to have you here today, Sue, by the way. Love you. The parallel is obvious. (laughs) She's been waiting for the mother-in-law joke to come out. (laughs) First of many, your calling, men, is to love. That's your call. And what are you called to? Love. You're called to love. Your wife's submission will be drawn out by love. You're not making her love or you hope that one day she'll kind of finally get the point and blah, blah, blah. No, you will draw it out the more you're self-sacrificially loving her. Her submission is a response to your romance. Tim Keller wrote, Subordinating ourselves to him, however, is radically safe so as we're looking at the gospel we as the bride submit ourselves to him and it's radically safe i was helping you out there but you got it okay it's a safe thing we don't have to be afraid because he has already shown that he was willing to go to hell and back for us is it any problem to submit to jesus you know he's got your best interests in mind He's already shown he's willing to go to hell and back for you. And so, uh, so it ought to be wives to husband. They will find safety in submitting to a husband that has a spare nothing unto death love for his wife. Keller goes on to say, so what do you need to make marriage work? You need to know the secret, the gospel, and how it gives you both the power and the pattern for your marriage. On the one hand, the experience of marriage will unveil the beauty and depths of the gospel to you. It will drive you further into reliance on it. On the other hand, the greater understanding of the gospel will help you experience deeper and deeper union with each other as the years go on. There then is the message of this book that through marriage, the mystery of the gospel is unveiled. Listen to this last little bit. Marriage is a major vehicle for the gospel's remaking of your heart from the inside out and your life from the ground up. In other words, marriage is incredibly refining. It's for our sanctification. It makes us holy because we see the gospel more and we need the gospel more. One man who had no ordinary marriage was Clive Staples Lewis. He was known to his friends and family as Jack. He was known to be a bachelor and was a very popular novelist, a poet, an academic, a, academic, a medievalist, a literary critic, an essayist, a lay theologian, a speaker, eventually a Christian apologetic in uh, Belfast, Ireland. You guys know him as C.S. Lewis. And he ended up writing an, uh, marrying an American writer named Joy Davidman. She had already been divorced and had two young sons from the previous marriage. She was from Jewish descent. She was a former, former communist and was 17 years younger than Lewis. They had totally radically different backgrounds and no one ever expected them actually getting married. But they were married in April of 1956. C.S. Lewis was 57 years old. He ended up discovering love, not as an academic man, but as a real man. And if you've watched the show The Shadowlands, a a story about his marriage and and how Joy ended up getting cancer and dying only about four years after they got married. In the movie Shadowlands, C.S. Lewis Uh, His actual voice is used where he writes and says, why am I so afraid? I never knew that love could hurt so much, yet I love you and all I want is to love you. So these words came from a first class scholar and writer and he hit the nail on the head. I never knew marriage, love could hurt so much. Cost so much, demand so much, surrender so much, requires such sacrifice. But all I want to do is to love you. Tim Keller also went on to say in his book, the reason that marriage is so painful and yet wonderful was actually Billy Graham that said, Marriage can be the closest thing to heaven on earth. That's all I heard. As Keller says, the reason that marriage is so painful and yet wonderful is because it's a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful all at once. All right? You, You have justice and judgment and wrath at the cross, but you also have mercy and grace and love. That's why... In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul sets before us the love of Jesus and his bride, the church. A love that is sacrificial, surrender, full of surrender, cost, pain. But it's nothing less than awesome and terrifying at the same time. (coughs) Keller said, when God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus Christ in mind. Read that the next time you read Genesis chapter 2. And the the creation of marriage that when he designed Adam and Eve, boom, he, he was already thinking about Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, the atonement, the church, the bride. To realize that Paul turns to you as you read Ephesians 5 and he says, so study the cross, gaze at the cross, linger there and then copy what you see. That's pretty overwhelming. And my family, we've just been taking this series to heart. And we've just been, in our morning devotions, we've just been very purposeful. Because we see our flesh and just how quick, just how quick, just nitpicky and fighting and kids fighting. And just, just, and you hate your brother. You hate your sister. And the fights that happen between us. And we just have to, in the morning, we just have to hit the deck. Literally. Literally. We've made it a practice in our home now to get on our knees as a family after we read Genesis and John right now and a short excerpt of a John Patton missions autobiography. Guys, like this is this is just a, a dork here that doesn't know what he's doing. But I'm just learning that whatever we're doing isn't working. We need Jesus. Whatever we're doing, our kids are still bickering and fighting. They're still. You know, there's still these skirmishes in our marriage. And so we've got to come before the cross. We've got to bow down and kneel down before the mercy seat where his blood poured out, before the open grave where he arose victorially and gave life everlasting. We cry out for that. And there's just been wonderful grace poured out to us in these times. We've been lingering at the cross. And as you're given these big tasks, Wives, submitting to your husband and respecting him. Husbands, loving your wife and giving yourself for her. Man, there needs to be a knowledge, a deep seated experience of the love of Jesus at the cross. Now, as you look in the Greek at the New Testament, there's different kinds of Greek love. All right? There's different kinds of Greek love. Um, in our English language, love is a very elastic word. It can mean a whole lot of different things. A Christian might say, I love Jesus, but I also love lasagna. So, you know, I love my church, but I also love Wednesday night TV. So, you know, so what kind of love are we talking about? Um, you know, as I talk about loving my wife or loving movies or loving the ocean you know, do these things reconcile at all, or are they completely different? And so you look at love in the New Testament, and there's different words for love that mean different things. Uh, the first one was, is eros, okay? We have these on uh, a screen for you to help you remember. Eros, which is where uh, the word erotic comes from. <coughs> um, uh. It, it, an erotic love or an eros love is all take. It's all take, okay? Um, in Asia Minor, philosophers used the term eros, uh, which Greeks believed referred to the kind of love that was won by the compelling beauty or worth of an object or person. Sometimes referred to an exotic kind of love experienced between men and their personal prostitutes. Okay, so that's one type of love. So, um, you know, what are you talking about when you love something? Is it eros? Um, There's phileo, which is a brotherly love. It's where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, phileo, and Delphos, brotherly love. Brotherly love, phileo, is more give and take, okay? Kind of like that brothers, okay? Okay. Philea uh, often was used to refer even to marriage, speaking of friends sharing a common interest. And that's kind of a secular view of a marriage type love, okay? Friends sharing a common interest. Then there's storge love. Storge love is all give, okay? And it is commonly among the Greek used to refer to uh, family members loving one another. It's just all give. But then writers of the New Testament, they kind of had to create a new word for love, a word that really captures uh, the New Testament love that we see in God the Father, in God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, their actions on earth towards men, and then the call that they have of men towards one another. And this love that the New Testament writers adopted was agape love, agape love. It's really a disinterested kind of love. And and so the New Testament writers infuse their own meaning into it. Uh, This kind of love is not divorced from feelings or from passions, as if feelings and passions weren't important. You'd have to be a Gnostic to think that they weren't. But it's a kind of love that's not dependent upon feelings or passions. Uh, as the basis for its expression, okay? Another definition of agape love, one author put it that it is a spiritual affection which follows the directions of the will. Unlike feelings, which are instinctive and unreasoned, agape can be commanded as a duty, okay? So agape is really a You know what? I choose to love you no matter where we're at in, you know, drama, life circumstances. One way or another, today, I choose to love you. Another definition is that it's a self-giving love. Totally unselfish. Seeks not its own satisfaction or even affection answering affection but that which strives for the highest good of the one love. Agape is a love that impels the one loving to give himself in a self-sacrifice for the well-being of the one love. A deep-seated, thorough-going, intelligent, and purposeful love in which the entire personality, not only the emotions, but the mind and the will, express itself and so as you hear of this kind of love and it's different than eros phileo storge this agape it's most perfectly personified in the work of jesus christ in his perfect sacrificial life and his perfect sacrificial death and then the victorious resurrection where he gives gifts towards men now tim keller Wrote, got to take a slug here. That many people hear this and they say, I'm sorry, I can't give that kind of love if I don't feel it. Personal open heart moment. I remember when like my one other girlfriend I ever had besides my wife dumped me. And I remember just saying to her, well, you know, um," it it was actually a quote from a country. It was a quote from a country music song. Not thought for sure that this would win her back. Um, you can't help how you don't feel. You guys know the song? You can't help how you don't. Okay. And she said, thank you for understanding it, and got out of the car and left. And I was cool. I moved on right away. What was it like a month? No, I'm kidding. You know, so, you know, you might be saying, I, I can't give this love if I don't feel it. I can't fake it. And Keller goes on to say, that's too mechanical for me. He's compassionate. He says, I can understand that reaction, but Paul doesn't simply call us to a naked action. He also commands us to think as we act. Husbands, love your wives. Think about this. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This means we must say to ourselves something like this. Well, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony and he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. He loved us, not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely that is why I am going to love my spouse speak to your heart like that and then fulfill the promise you made on your wedding day men (laughs) speak to your heart like that speak the gospel to your heart spend time lingering at the cross what was the cross who was on the cross Where did he come from? Where was he going? Why was he on the cross? How do I fit into this whole thing? And now I got this situation. And it doesn't just apply to our marriage. It applies to our work. It applies to our friendship. It applies to leaving a football stadium on a Friday night and seeing sunflower seeds all over in trash. And the option is there to contribute to society or to let somebody else serve me. Have the cross before you. It affects how you live. Agape love brings a warm temperature to the marriage, no matter what the external circumstances may be. No matter what, no matter how cold it is, it warms it up. Richard Halverson, any relation? No? Okay, you sure? Okay, that's Ron Halverson in case you're wondering. Richard Halverson was a Presbyterian pastor, in the late uh, 1900s, which some of us were alive then, almost all of us, but late, like 50s through the 80s. Uh, He also was the chaplain of the United States Senate in the 80s and the 90s, and he was uh, on the board of World Vision and Concerned Ministries. Richard Halverson wrote, 69 years of life and 42 of marriage have brought with it a deep, settled conviction on the economy of God. Men, 100% of the responsibility for sustaining a marriage belongs to a husband. No failure or sin on the part of the wife is his justification to forsake her? A husband cannot force his wife to receive his love or to reciprocate it, but he must love her. Men, where's your marriage at? No matter what, you rewind the tape, you even go to the, the day of covenant. You go before, to the day of betrothal, engagement, courtship. And I'll tell you what, 100% of where your marriage today rests on, have you been loving her as Christ loved the church? How do we learn this? I love this quote this week, texted it to a brother. By hanging out in the atmosphere of the cross. Hang out in the atmosphere of the cross. Plunge yourself in. Immerse yourself. Reflect on the glory of the cross. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said the Lord Jesus loves his church unselfishly. That is to say, he never loved her for what she has, but what she is. No, I must go further than that and say that He loved her not so much for what she is, but what He makes her as the object of His love. He loves her not for what comes to Him from her or with her, but but for what He is able to bestow upon her. His is the strongest love that ever was, for He has loved unseemliness, till he has changed it into beauty. He has loved the sinner, till he has made him a saint. He has loved the foul and filthy, till he has washed them with water by the word of God and presented them to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. A man once heard the world-famous violinist Yehudi Menahuni play beautiful music. After the concert, he tracked down Menuhin, is how it's pronounced. And he said, I would give my life to play like that. And Menuhin said, I have. I have given my life. We read Ephesians 5 and we say, I'd give my life to love like that. And Jesus' response is, I have. Or we read of missionaries going on to be evangelists to the darkest parts of the world. And we look at Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus says when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be martyrs, martyros, witnesses, here, there, and everywhere. But it's been said that a martyr isn't just someone who dies for Jesus. It's someone who lives for Jesus and dies daily for Jesus. It's the same with husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church, giving yourself for her. There's not some big blaze of glory in the end that you're going to do that's going to finally show your wife you love her. It's through daily dying to yourself for her greatest good. Last week we defined love on the part of a Christian husband It was two weeks ago. Josh Duncan was here last week. We defined it as his unceasing commitment to act in the highest good of his wife. And this week, we see it described, not just defined for us, but we see it personified. We see an example in the display of Jesus loving the church. Kevin DeYoung says, Kevin DeYoung, a a preacher here in the United States, contributor to the Gospel Coalition website, he writes, Christian husbands, you don't have the freedom to fall out of love with your wife. And what is the primary reason for this? Well, we often make the mistake of talking about Christ's relationship with the church as comparable to our marriage relationships. But that is not what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says that Christ's relationship with the church is the substance. And our marriage relationships are just a reflection of that. Therefore, our marriages either rightly or poorly reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. This means that for the Christian husband... He knows that he cannot and will not fall out of love with his wife because that would speak falsely about the Savior. He knows that within his marriage, there is an even higher calling in loving his wife. And that is the glory of God. You guys know Romans chapter 8, the very last couple of verses. It was a song that we used to sing. My youth pastor wrote it when I was a freshman in high school. It says, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Could that be said about husbands, And your relationship to your wife. I mean, that would be a pretty good romantic love song, wouldn't it? Hey, baby. Wrote a little song for you. Sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul to the Romans. You be quiet. (laughs) For I am convinced. You know. Oh, swoon, right? Jesus is that ultimate example of the romance. The love song. He's the meaning in my life. He's the inspiration. He brings feeling in my life. He's the inspiration, right? Chicago? Anybody? Savage says the Christian husband should draw his inspiration from the exceptional love of Christ. There will never be sufficient reason for Christ to abandon his bride. The church which bears his name. Our friend Artaxerdeus said, Here Paul is speaking, and men can be notoriously slow to connect the dots. So to be as obvious as possible in the command to love, he takes this fast, limitless, eternal perfection of Jesus Christ in all of its inexhaustibility, and he summarizes it in one historical moment. The romance of a husband to his bride at the cross of Calvary. We'll have the worship team come back up. Paul got very specific today. He said, husbands love your wives. And right away, husbands are like, well, I sure do that. And then Paul says, hey, hold on, shh. Let me be specific. Like Christ, loved the church by giving himself up for her. Well, I don't really do that. Then we cry out today. We cry out for help. We cry out for power. We cry out for strength. And we look at the hero, the true and better Lawrence Oates, who not only left the warmth of his Antarctic content in his reindeer sleeping bag to just be gone a little while and to die in a negative 40 degree blizzard so that his friends might have life. That true and better Lawrence Oates is Jesus Christ who left willingly the throne room of heaven Looking down from heaven, he saw what he already knew would be happening, and that is that men would be trying to make it on their own. And even with a perfect law put in front of them, just do this and you'll be good. They couldn't do it. And so Jesus from the throne, in Psalm chapter 40 and Hebrews chapter 10, we have the words of Jesus. It's a Christmas story. It's the words right before he went into the womb of Mary. And he says, You know what? Sacrifice and offering and religious stuff you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Behold, in the volume of the book, the story is told of me. I delight to do your will, O God. And he was placed in the womb of Mary. He was born like every other man, lived the life of a man, yet without sin, and was tempted in every way that every other man was tempted, and yet he never sinned. And then his own creation brings accusations against him and plots to murder him and finally does just that. Murder him, He's betrayed by his own friends, nailed to a Roman cross after having been whipped with a Roman flagorum, died on the cross, buried in the grave, risen to new life so that his friends might be saved, so that his friends might be saved. In this we know love, because Christ died for us. And so now we ought to also love one another. Husbands, why should you love your wives? Because Jesus loved you, gave, yourself, gave himself for you. Press this into our hearts today, Lord. Marriage is hard. That darn fall back in Genesis chapter 3 really messed things up. Really messed us up as husbands. Lord, we can't get it right without you. Really messed us up as wives. Lord, they can't get it right without you. And Lord, we're aware that we can make it 60 years, 70 years in marriage and be cohabitators, be roommates. But if we're not reflecting the gospel, we've missed the mark. We missed the mark, Lord. And so we just want to come and repent of worldly love love that we learn from daytime soap operas and evening dramas, love that we've learned from country music. Oh, how we've fallen short of your glory. And we have whenever we've not learned love from the cross. Help us to learn love from the cross today, God. We hang out at it. We linger at it today and we say infuse into us gospel-centered family. Let's stand together.